This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Heart for Lebanon. God is using Heart for Lebanon to bring practical assistance and the gospel to the stricken refugee families in Lebanon. For a gift of $116, you can give a child and his family survival essentials for four months and the hope of Jesus Christ, which lasts forever. Call now, 888-247-5499, 888-247-5499, or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it! And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Thank you so much for joining us again. Representative Liz Cheney this week urged her Republican colleagues to do their duty to prevent the dismantling of the rule of law. But she wasn't referring to any of the shenanigans concerning the 2020 presidential election. About that, she told her colleagues, you all know that there is no evidence of widespread election fraud sufficient to have changed the results of the election. You all know that the Dominion voting machines were not corrupted by a foreign power. You know these claims are false, yet former President Trump repeats them almost daily. What Cheney was urging GOP members to do was to embrace their duty to ensure that nothing like January 6th ever happens again. Well, in fact, we saw all kinds of non-adherence to the rule of law during the election and in the aftermath, with a lot of rules thrown out under the guise of a pandemic emergency. And even worse, we saw how tech giants and the media worked overtime to protect now President Biden, most famously maybe by ignoring and censoring online content about his son Hunter's laptop scandal, and all to ensure the desired leftist outcome. How did it all happen? Can we prevent it from happening again. We're going to talk about this today with Molly Hemingway, a senior editor at The Federalist, Fox News contributor and author of the new book, Rigged, How the Media, Big Tech and the Democrats Seized Our Elections. Molly, great to have you with us. How are you? It's just wonderful to be here with you. Thank you. Thank you. All right. The 2020 election, as you write in your book, was unlike any in the nation's history. I think we would all agree with that. But you've said it's almost impossible to find conclusive evidence of election fraud, even though we know that doesn't mean the election you know, wasn't conducted without widespread interference. So what would you say was the most key interference that did occur during the election? Well, there were really two ways that the election was corrupted. And the the biggest one, or the one I thought was most explosive, is that Mark Zuckerberg, who is one of the world's wealthiest and most powerful men, spent $419 million to embed left-wing activists into governmental election offices. This was not campaign spending. This wasn't him funding Democrat ads or anything like this. This was uh, private takeover of our government election offices under the guise of COVID funding, but what was really bringing left-wing activists in to handle voter registration, get out the vote efforts, ballot design, ballot translation, ballot counting. And this happened with hardly anyone, you know, even saying anything about it. And it was really, uh, oh, and the other thing is he did this in Democrat counties in swing states. It was targeted funding to drive up Democrat votes by embedding into our governmental offices. It was really shocking when I found that out. Well, yeah. I mean, you guys had a piece over at the Federalist saying the election wasn't stolen. It was bought by Zuckerberg. So all of this money that ended up going to the Center for Election Innovation and Research and the Center for Technology and Civic Life, then that trickles down into these major cities, which are blue already. So how substantially did that alter the landscape in favor of Biden? 
Well, it's worth remembering that the 2020 election came down to 43,000 votes across three states. So it was an incredibly close election. And researchers have been looking at where Zuckerberg chose to spend his funds and what the partisan results were. And it is shocking. I mean, not just was the funding predominantly in Democrat counties, but it affected Democrat turnout in meaningful ways. This team of researchers, which is focused in Texas, because that's where they're based, looked and they did a Bayesian analysis of the of the funding and determined that they were able to squeeze out 200,000 additional votes for Joe Biden uh, than, than he would have gotten otherwise because of this funding. And, you know, Texas is a pretty Republican state and it had a very good year for Republicans in 2020. But just two years prior, I think the Senate race was determined by about 200,000 votes. Yeah. And you look at other states where they spent far more money, like Georgia, which is a fraction of the size of Texas, but they spent much more money there, $45 million. And that state was decided by 10,000 votes or so. And in 2016, it went for by five points for Trump. In 2020, it went one point for Biden. Just across the border in Florida, you know, by comparison, which received much less of this funding, it went two points more in the Donald Trump direction than it had been in 2016. And so, you know, as people learn more about this funding and just they're blown away by how significant it was. And it's just, you know, one global tech oligarch who was running our elections. And I think if it were anyone else or a different year, you would be hearing people screaming bloody murder about it. more. Yeah, yeah, you're right about that. And yet it wasn't technically illegal for Zuckerberg to do it. Is that right? It's kind of an open question. There were some legal challenges beforehand, and judges tended to think that it wasn't going to be partisan. Now that they know it was partisan funding for partisan results, I think that the same lawsuits probably would have much more um, fruitful results. And then the other issue, though, is that a lot of states are now banning the private takeover of government election offices. But generally speaking, non nonpartisan nonprofit groups aren't allowed to be partisan. And this is this was such a clear, clear partisan activity that it might have been illegal even even before they changed the law to overtly ban the private takeover of election office. Well, it's incredible. And I know that you've sat down with President Trump in order to put your book together. What was his reaction? What did he tell you about his opinion on all of this? Clearly, he's been calling the election a fraud. He's been very verbal in expressing his you know, disdain for the process and what went wrong during the 2020 election. But specifically on the Zuckerberg funding issue, what has he had to say to you, if anything? Well, yeah, I remember that one of the things he said is he thought Zuckerberg should be in jail for what he did. And he thought, in general, big tech was engaged in all sorts of nefarious activity. It wasn't just the private takeover of the election offices. It was an untold amount of in-kind support for Joe Biden and against Republicans through the suppression of news, through the censorship of effective social media accounts, you know, not just Donald Trump, but meme makers and other effective conservative voices. It was algorithmic changes so that conservative or non-leftist news sites were devalued at the expense of left-wing media uh, and corporate media. And after the 2016 election, these tech oligarchs all kind of said, and CEOs, they they all said publicly, you know, we'll never let what happened in 2016 happen again. And what they meant by that was, with the free flow of information, Americans had chosen a political candidate that the tech companies didn't want. And so they said they were not going to let it happen again. And they threw out everything 
to to achieve their preferred electoral outcome. And they, they got it, but it it took a lot to suppress to suppress people's um, you know information and news and all things that we we value in this country. Yeah, you're right about that. And also, as you mentioned, the fact that now you have Zuckerberg going to these media outlets to do fact checks. And the media obviously is very left wing. You have this combating fake news effort and now they've just continued on with this. This is just flat out suppression of dissent from the leftist ideology that they want everybody to, you know, get under and vote for. Uh, what what happens now? You you have such frustration on the Republican side. Conservatives very frustrated with Republicans in Congress who talk a good game about reigning in the big tech oligarchs and do practically nothing from the average citizen's point of view. I'm actually here on Capitol Hill right now. I've just spoken with a bunch of people who do care about election integrity, and you know it's it's not to say that there's nothing that can be done, but Democrats do control the White House, the Senate, and the House. There's a very limited uh, amount that can be done. But one thing that Republicans seem to be trying to do is actually put together some game plan for when they take back the House, which I think most people assume will happen next year. Much more needs to be done. Much more needs to be debated. But everybody can participate in that. People with good ideas need to put those ideas forward. They need to start building support for what to do. The, The tech company control over our information is a threat to the Republic. And it, you know, they're there's so many things that need to be done, but people with good ideas need to get out there and start advocating them um, because this this could actually destroy the entire country. The whole, you know, when you think about the First Amendment and freedom of speech and freedom of the press and freedom of religion, all these are rooted in the idea that we have a right to pursue truth. And that's what tech companies are going to war against. This is a major issue at our founding. It continues to be a major issue. And it is it is a dystopic horror show how we are acting more like Soviet Russia right now than the United States of America. Well, you're right. Molly Hemingway will come back discussing her book, Rigged, here on Janet Meffer today. Stay with us. Hi, this is Janet Mefford for Preborn. Candace talks about finding out she was pregnant. Thankfully, an ultrasound provided by Preborn allowed her to hear her baby's heartbeat. The sonogram sealed the deal for me. My baby was like this tiny little spectrum of hope. And I saw his heart beating on the screen. And knowing that there's life growing inside, I mean, that sonogram changed my life. I went from just Candace to mom, thank you to everybody that has given these gifts. You guys are giving more than money. You guys are giving love. Would you make a leadership gift and sponsor a machine today? These life-saving machines cost more than most centers can afford. Your tax-deductible gift of $15,000 will place a machine in a needy women's center and save countless lives for years to come. All gifts are tax-deductible. To donate, call 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mafford for Bible League International. Jaime is an itinerant pastor in Ecuador. In Latin America, there, there are violence. Pastors and Christian workers uh, face with attackers, thieves, gangs. So that's the, that's the problem. 
Jaime will travel days by foot, boat, and mule. He's been beaten by warlocks, robbed, and suffered broken bones after falling in the Andes Mountains. What awaits him at the end of each trip? A thriving congregation of hundreds of believers in an area where Christianity is fiercely opposed. When I share Jaime's story, I recall Isaiah 6, 8. Whom shall I send? Who will go? I believe this man is enduring more than some pastors ever will. And like others in the world where Bibles are desperately needed, Jaime is humbly asking us to send God's word. For only $5, you can send a Bible to Latin America and around the world. Call 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD, or there's a Bible League banner at JanetMefford.com. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. A lot of us are still looking back on the 2020 presidential election and saying, what happened? How in the world did they get Joe Biden in the White House? And the answer is very, very horrifying if you get into all the details. And Molly Hemingway does in her new book, Rigged, How the Media, Big Tech, and the Democrats Seized Our Elections. We were talking, Molly, earlier about this issue of Zuckerberg uh, spending $419 million to, you know, in these Democratic counties to bring out the vote and activists were involved. Now you you mentioned that a number of states have passed laws against that. What about, though, the issue of COVID-19 and how the pandemic emergency was used and exploited, I would say, in order to do things that were against election laws and without the involvement in many cases of state legislatures? How much of an impact did that have? It is such a good question because the Zuckerberg funding and takeover of government election offices wouldn't have had the effect it did if the laws and processes on how we vote hadn't been radically altered through a coordinated campaign um, by Democratic lawyers who, who systematically worked through each state to water down election security and to drastically expand the use of mail-in balloting. I mean, we're talking tens of millions of mail-in ballots flooding into the system at the same time that scrutiny was lowered for them. And this was in a major reason why Democrats were able to win in 2020. And some states made the changes as a temporary measure. A lot of states just changed the law to massively expand these less secure voting methods. And so it is important that people understand what their state laws are, how they are enforced. I mean, some of the problems that were a result of these changes in election laws and processes weren't even about what the law themselves said so much as different counties interpreted them differently. You know, in Pennsylvania, it was pretty clear that you weren't supposed to inspect ballots until election day. It was a big, you know, legislative issue where they battled about it and they decided, nope, you can't count ballots until election day. And so one county would just put all those ballots away in a room that came in mail-in ballot style. And they would just wait till election day. But Philadelphia, the big Democrat county responsible for most of the votes in the state, they started looking at the ballots early. They looked at the envelopes, I should say, early. <laughs> and if there were problems with the outer part of the envelope, you know, not a signature, not a date, they would take those back to their Democrat voters and get them to fix it. And it resulted in a very disparate impact where voters in Republican-led counties, uh, you know, they would have their ballots thrown out for the same thing that a voter in a Democrat county would be able to fix. And, and this is 
this is replicated nationwide in the chaos and confusion of 2020. It's horrible what went on. And, you know, it's interesting. A lot of people initially were encouraged, I know, to see President Trump question the results of the election and then to see people like Rudy Giuliani jumping in, Sidney Powell, some others to challenge the results in court. From there, there were some narratives that were put forward that turned out to go nowhere and a lot of legal challenges that didn't work. And there were a lot of questions. Why was it that with all the attempts to try to get legal help in order to right the wrong that was done, it just kept failing over and over. Well, part of it was a poor legal strategy after the election. I get into this in the book, too. In Pennsylvania, they had a really good case that was working its way through the court about this issue of different treatment in different parts of the state. That's the same issue that the Supreme Court ruled on in Bush v. Gore in 2000. So it's a very fruitful uh, way to pursue election challenges. And then as things were deteriorating, Rudy Giuliani came in, took over the case and tried to turn it into a fraud case, which was not what was being alleged. I mean, I think people use the term fraud colloquially to describe all the problems that can happen in an election. But it's actually a specific term that requires certain things to be met. It's very difficult to determine, particularly in the rush right after an election. And so when he took over the case and he altered what it was about, not only did it cause the failure of that case, but it had this kind of ripple effect throughout the country. Attorneys who were defending the Trump campaign were receiving death threats, rape threats. Their children, you know, were being attacked. I mean, it was a really horrific environment because that's what the left is doing right now. Um, And to also be not having a legal strategy that they supported, they just decided to kind of jump and court. uh, The judges were deciding not to, not to hear these things too, but that doesn't mean you know, in some cases, judges just avoided dealing with real issues. Judges tend not to like to get involved in election disputes. Right. They really should have this time around, regardless of how they ruled. There is something to be said for just settling issues that are under contention. And it even causes fights at the Supreme Court level as they decide not to hear certain cases. And some of the justices say, we have got to resolve these issues because there will be elections, you know, in a matter of months or years where people need to know what the rules are. And when there is a dispute, a court does have to kind of come in and say what's right and what's wrong. And they just abdicated a lot of their responsibility. And I think we saw the chaos that has resulted from that. Yeah, you're right about that. What was your reaction in particular to the Supreme Court denying standing to Texas over that lawsuit? Because there were a lot of us here in Texas where I am who had high hopes. Maybe this one finally will go forward, but they didn't go for it. It's funny because I could have actually seen that case going down but not on standing. So it, it is a good example, I think, of a case that they really should have heard and then settled the issue that would have added resolution. People tend to accept results even when they strongly disagree with them. I mean, you look at uh, a horrible legal decision like Roe v. Wade. Yes, people will work to secure justice, and that is a very unjust decision, but they still accept that it is what the ruling was. They right, understand they right. live in a regime that ha- that allows abortion, for instance. Um, but by not hearing the case not and denying standing, it just left the questions unanswered. And the issues raised in that case were important. You know, the Constitution requires all changes to election law to be handled by state legislatures. That didn't happen frequently in mm. 2020. Right. That is a major constitutional issue. It does require or it does... It seems that this is something that should be resolved by courts and also that state legislatures themselves should be much more aggressive in defending their constitutional rights here. Uh, And that didn't happen. And it's not, you know, 
Pennsylvania was pretty chaotic as a result of their own Supreme Court, the Pennsylvania Supreme Court, getting involved in a confusing way on some of the disputes and then the U.S. Supreme Court not resolving some of these issues. Yeah, it was a mess. But because of the emergency excuse they used over COVID-19, that might be something that's not as well used. Who knows how long this pandemic is going to last? We might be on the 14th variant by the time the next presidential election rolls around. But how do you see anything getting better going into the next presidential election, at least on the issue of emergency see uh, rules being put into place and some of the things they could get away with when everybody was nervous about COVID-19. It's not going to probably be the same uh, next time around. How do you see that potentially playing out? Well, it's a major threat. The, the issue has still been working its way through Congress as Democrats hope to permanentize the changes that they made. They saw how they worked well for them in 2020, and they would like to have it happen in all future elections. You also see that corporate media doesn't want people to talk about what actually happened, probably because they also would like to see these things used in subsequent elections, because most of our corporate media are so closely allied with Democrats, and, and um, they, they view that as their political party. At the same time, I think people on the other end of the political spectrum have really awakened to the importance of election integrity. They are pushing their state legislators to do more. Um, Not enough is being done, but some stuff is being done and people are going to be more involved. And so I think that's what's key. People need to personally be involved as election judges. This is a major issue. They also need to fund efforts to secure election integrity. There is a big money and legal uh, disparity in how well finance Democrats are in their efforts to expand uh, voting methods that don't have appropriate scrutiny. And so the other side of the aisle should wake up and battle those with money and resources. So there are lots of things that can be done. And I think it's important for Americans to remember we have had battles over election laws our entire history. And it wasn't even that long ago that Democrats had gotten in quite a bit of trouble for their Jim Crow efforts in the South, which was these efforts to suppress the black vote through Um, through rules and requirements that disenfranchise black voters. And people knew that was happening and they fixed it and they keep going. And so don't, people shouldn't despair. They should just fix what the problems are and get back to work. Right. So it's very key then that those who are very frustrated from the 2020 election results want to change things and win back control, Republicans win back control of the House. What about the media, Molly? Because we couldn't have a lot of this go on without the willing accomplices in the media going along and and not covering certain stories like the Hunter Biden laptop scandal, which I think would have made a huge difference. If that had been Donald Trump Jr., we know that would have been on every headline for months and months and months, and they'd probably impeach him again for that. What is your take on any hope for for the media, the mainstream media, getting any more fair or doing any more balanced coverage the next time around and how to get around that? Oh, I mean, nobody should hope that they will improve. Our corrupt media are the biggest threat to the republic that we have. They're unaccountable political actors, and they each day harm the country through their fake news or elevation of false narratives and, uh, you know, censorship of real news stories. And so what has happened in the last few years is good. People know the media lie. They know they lied for four years that Donald Trump stole the 2016 election, included with Russia, and that he wasn't a legitimate president, only to on a dime say that nobody could have any questions <laughs> about one of the messiest elections in world history. Right. And they know not to listen to these people. But I think 
conservative leaders need to also know to, to marginalize these media figures who are not media. They're just propaganda. And people who don't engage in propaganda for the left should be funded and supported. I, I run a publication called The Federalist, and we do great journalism. We investigated the Russia hoax. We covered election integrity issues. But that takes resources, and so people should fund and help out those groups that are doing that. We also should probably, as Justice Thomas says, revisit uh, libel laws that yep. allow the media to defame people without any repercussions. And then we also need to tackle, as you mentioned before, big tech, which does so much to weaponize and and make more serious the problems with our corrupt media. Excellent. All good. Rigged, how the media, big tech and the Democrats seized our elections. Wonderful book from Molly Hemingway, senior editor at The Federalist, which we love. Molly, thank you so much for being here. Great to talk to you. Thank you. Take care. All right. You too. You're listening to Janet Meffer today. This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit healthcare sharing ministry that allows you to control and manage your own healthcare and choose any doctor or hospital in the nation. If you're a freedom-loving American looking for contract-free healthcare, call now, 855-585-4237, or go to libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT for more information, libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. This is Janet Mefford today. And now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. Welcome back. The Lord is doing tremendous things right now among the needy people in Lebanon, especially among the Muslim background refugees in the camps there. We have been telling you about our partnership with the great ministry, Heart for Lebanon. They are on the ground in that country providing emergency supplies, Christian education, and the gospel to those who are in such desperate need of help and hope. Heart for Lebanon is helping so many families, but there are a lot more who need help, and most of all, they need Jesus. We want to ensure that 52 families in Lebanon get off the long waiting list for help and obtain four months worth of survival essentials and best of all the opportunity to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and grow in their faith which is happening in an incredible way over in these refugee camps where Heart for Lebanon is hard at work. Right now we are about three quarters of the way there thanks to your generosity. Thank you so much but there are so many more families to help. We'd like to assist more than 52 families as well if we are able to. Your investment of $116 will help one child and his or her family to receive four months of survival essentials and the gospel, which lasts forever. You can also help with a gift of $29 per month if you prefer that. This is the number to call. It's 888-247-5499, 888-247-5499, or there is a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. Well, we're going to get some more details on what is happening right now with Heart for Lebanon Executive Director James Ward. James, it's great to have you with us. How are you? Janet, I'm doing great. Excited to be with you today and look forward to just talking a little bit about the incredible, incredible things God's doing uh, in Lebanon and throughout the Middle East. Amen. Well, tell us what's going on. Bring us up to speed. Well, Janet, I was actually just in Lebanon uh, a little over a week ago. I had the opportunity to spend some time on the ground there with our team and uh, the families that are being impacted. And I'll tell you, this is a uh, this is truly a historic opportunity. Um, Lebanon as a country, as as you probably know and have probably talked about, has, is really in a very desperate state of crisis. Um, there are food shortages, 
fuel shortages. There was eruption of violence just last week in the capital city of Beirut. Um, and all these things, as horrible as they are, and they really are horrible, the economic crisis, um, what's happening is it is causing people, uh, both from a Muslim background, uh, Christian background, uh, refugee families, even Lebanese families, it's causing them to ask why. Why are we in this position? Why is the world crumbling down around us? And, uh, and, and there are no real good answers to that. Um, and people are searching. They're looking uh, for answers. They're looking for security. And in this moment, God has uniquely positioned us there to be able to, uh, to serve them physically, um, but to also meet their needs spiritually. And the, the food packages, the distribution, the relief work that we are doing in country really serves as a tangible expression of the love of Jesus Christ and allows us and our staff on the ground the opportunity to build relationship with them share the gospel with them, and ultimately lead them into a relationship with Jesus Christ. And we're seeing it happen. Had the opportunity to be a part of a baptism uh, two Sundays ago, where over 24 men, women, and children, most of which from a Muslim background, uh, were baptized in a church that was planted through Heart for Lebanon two years ago. It was an incredible day. Uh, God's doing some unbelievable stuff there. Oh, yeah. I mean, this is so exciting. You know, it's one thing I was discussing this with Tom Adama just recently, and it's one thing to just give survival essentials, emergency supplies, hand things to people who are in need of them. And it's another thing to use that and build those relationships as a means of sharing Christ with them. And the response, I'm not just blown away by what's going on with people coming to Christ, but how your Bible studies are growing, how the churches that you've planted there are growing and how just the simple act of loving them in the midst of such desperate conditions is really having a huge effect. And I'm sure you have lots of stories along those lines. You know, I do. The one that comes to mind, this was one of my favorite stories from my last trip. One of the things that we do and, and that when we um, when people call up and they make that investment and they allow us to add or bring a new family into the, to, to the Heart for Lebanon initiative, um, one of one of the things that does is it allows us access to minister and serve their children as well. And we have a Hope on Wheels program. We have uh, Bible study clubs. And literally just a little over, well, just under two weeks ago, I was in country. I strolled into one of our one of our classrooms at our Hope Center, and there was a group of about twelve or thirteen young girls between the ages of eleven and sixteen. Um, most of these girls had never stepped foot in a classroom. They're refugee children who have been in Lebanon almost their entire lives, most of them since they were three or four years old. So they've never had the opportunity to sit in a classroom. They don't know how to read or write, um, but they're in this safe place. They're learning and studying the Bible. Janet, it was the coolest thing. (laughs) There was only one Bible open in the room, and that was from the Bible teacher, one of our staff members, because, of course, the girls can't read and write. It it doesn't do them a lot of good to look at at even at an Arabic Bible. But they're acting out these Bible stories in real time, and and the the leader is teaching them to memorize Scripture and memorize verses, and it was just the most incredible thing to know, having been in the camps many, many times myself, knowing how vulnerable young girls at that age are, and seeing them in a safe place, learning about the Scriptures, and then literally two hours later, those same group of girls were in a class learning about haircutting, learning barbery, how to cut hair, learning a skill that they can use um, 
as they grow and as they become women that in that culture that they've got a skill, a way to add value and to help support themselves and their families. I mean, can you just imagine how empowering that is for these young, these young ladies? Um, And, and again, it all starts with that, with that initial engagement, that food package, that relief that allows us the opportunity to build a relationship with them and their families and the transformation that takes place from that point forward as we continue to walk alongside of them is just incredible. That is so neat to hear, uh, so encouraging to hear how God is at work in the lives of these folks, many of whom had never heard the gospel before they came to Lebanon and encountered Heart for Lebanon. Can you talk a little bit, James, about this waiting list that I mentioned, that you have so many families you're helping, but there are so many more who are just waiting to be helped, and that's why we're conducting this campaign and getting listeners involved so we can get those names off the waiting list how long is the waiting list? What's the situation there? Well, so Janet, we uh, last year, well, really up until about May of this year, we were kind of we were serving a little over two thousand families a month, um, and that was kind of our number. That's what we had the capacity to do in a, in a good way, and to be able to really engage and build relationships with these families. But as the situation in Lebanon continued to deteriorate, the needs both in the refugee communities and in the host communities began to just get worse and worse, and there was more and more desperation. Um, We decided that that now was the time to grow, that God was opening up this opportunity. We uh, We have the infrastructure. We need some additional staff, some additional um, of course, supplies and, and infrastructure, but we had the basics there to be able to grow. And so we decided, we set a goal to add an additional 1,600 families. Um, and we are well into that process now. We are well into that list, but that waiting list that we're talking about, that's these 1,600 families that have been vetted, um, that we have met with, that we know they have a need, the need is legit. And that's the list that we're working off of. And so it is, it's a huge list. And listen, Janet, there are over 2 million refugees in Lebanon. When we get done with that list, God willing, we'll, we'll create another list. Mm-hmm. As long as there's an opportunity in country, we want to be as faithful as we can be to optimize and serve as many families as God gives us the opportunity to serve. Well, praise the Lord. And it is an opportune time for you to be able to reach as many people as possible with the love of Jesus and the gospel of Jesus. If you'd like to get involved, $116 is all it takes to help one child and his or her family receive four months of survival essentials and the gospel, which lasts forever. You can also help out if you'd like to give a gift monthly of $29, but we really do need your help. As I mentioned before, we're about three quarters of the way toward our goal of 52 families, getting them off the waiting list. And we'd like to go beyond that with your help. We can't do it without you. So if you're able to join us, this is the number to call. It's 888-247-5499, 888-247-5499, or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. Thanks to James Ward, Heart for Lebanon's Executive Director. James, always good to talk to you. Thanks a lot for what you do. We'll be praying for you. Thank you so much, Janet. All right. God bless you. And we'll be back on Janet Meffer today. Hi, this is Janet Mefford, and I'm joined today by Matt Bellis with Liberty HealthShare, a national nonprofit healthcare sharing ministry. Matt, the rising costs of health insurance have really taken a toll on a lot of people, especially during this pandemic. Why do your members recommend Liberty HealthShare? 
Well, it really does change the way that you approach healthcare when it comes to healthcare sharing. Because each individual member of Liberty HealthShare is what we call a self-pay patient or a private pay patient, where we're each individually responsible and able to guide and manage and direct our own health care free from the constraints of government controls or third-party insurance systems. It really changes the whole methodology by which you approach health care to where you start seeing yourself as the owner of your health rather than just somebody who's entitled to a program because you paid some money. And we see lower costs, greater accessibility, and frankly, better outcomes. Tell us about the personal interaction that your members experience with Liberty HealthShare. Well, it's important in Liberty HealthShare to know that we're not just bodies in need of getting our bodies fixed. (laughs) We're also spiritual beings that need to be in relationship and connection with other people. So in our system, online system that we call ShareBox, we have what we call a prayer box where our members come together to pray for each other in times of need, to help support one another, and let everyone know that you're not alone. During these times that are unprecedented and can be very lonely, you've got an entire nationwide community right behind you, praying for you, here for you as an individual and a member. Thanks, Matt. More information about Liberty HealthShare is available at libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT, or their phone number is 855-585-4237. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Well, Russell Moore is getting sued. That's it. That's the story. No, that's not the whole story. Russell Moore, the former head of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission at the Southern Baptist Convention, who moved on to a more appropriate job when he went to Christianity Today and the liberals over there, he's getting sued. And he's not just getting sued by any old person in the SBC. He's getting sued by Mike Stone. Mike Stone, the pastor and the former head of the executive committee at the Southern Baptist Convention's leadership level. That's a very high position. He also ran for president, you might recall, of the Southern Baptist Convention. And you might recall as well what happened right about the time that the annual meeting was set to take place last summer, this just a few months ago. What happened was that Russell Moore, or somebody, I need to make sure that I say this correctly, somebody released a couple of letters that Russell Moore had penned. One of them was to J.D. Greer, but the first one was really a bombshell, and he was talking about all the horrible things uh, concerning the sexual abuse that was ignored and, you know, all the detail. You can go back and read all of that. I don't recall every single detail in that letter. But basically what happened when he did that, he was dropping a bomb, and everybody knew it was politically timed because they wanted Ed Litton, the plagiarist, to be the head of the SBC, and they got him. Mike Stone was a threat. They didn't want Mike Stone. And part of the problem here is that Mike Stone was a participant in a task force that was created to assess whether the actions of the ERLC at the time that Russell Moore was leading it and the leadership of the ERLC were negatively affecting the fiscal well-being of the SBC. In other words, everybody was worried and not everybody, but the conservatives were very worried among the SBC leadership. How much is Russell Moore affecting giving 
And how many problems have emerged because Russell Moore is a lightning rod for people who are worried about the leftward drift of the Southern Baptist Convention. So they, they found some substantive information along those lines. And from what Mike Stone says in this uh, U.S. District Court for the Middle District of Tennessee, filing is quite eye-opening. He is filing this complaint, as it says in the filing here for the lawsuit, for claims of defamation false light invasion of privacy and emotional distress against defendant Russell Dwayne Moore. And I read through the entire lawsuit here. It's quite interesting when he goes through all the statement of facts. He talks about his background. He's a pastor at Emanuel Baptist in Blackshear, Georgia. We've had him on the show before. But he says his income is derived from his services as a trusted minister in local church context and not limited to that. It includes honorariums or honoraria, if you'd like to say. He's a guest speaker at conferences and church services almost exclusively among Southern Baptists. He became involved with the executive committee in 2014, served as the chairman from 2018 to 2020. And then in June 19, 2019, the SBC formed its own standing committee, the Credentials Committee, to handle all matters of cooperation with affiliates and addressing reported allegations of sexual abuse. And then he goes into some of the details about what they can and what they can't do, legally speaking. Throughout his service on the executive committee and pursuant to his related fiduciary obligations, Mike Stone says he would show that he participated in a task force created to assess the actions of the ERLC and whether or not that was affecting the fiscal well-being of the denomination. Beginning on or about February 24th, 2020, within one week of the creation of the task force, Russell Moore, he alleges, began a malicious, intentional and egregious campaign to harm plaintiff Mike Stone, including but not limited to defaming him within the text of two letters strategically concealed from general distribution within the ERLC and the SBC, but then subsequently surreptitiously released or leaked, he puts in quotes, to the news media, which defendant Russell Moore knew due to the controversial nature of the letters that his prominent position within the ERLC and the religious community at large and his significant connections to major media outlets would result in their widespread publication. And we recall this was very heavily covered by groups like the Religion News Service, Baptist Press and other well, let's just say arms of Russell Moore. Upon information and belief, Mike Stone's, or I should say Russell Moore's malicious campaign against Mike Stone was motivated, this filing says, in part by Moore's desire to retaliate against Stone for his service on the aforementioned task force of the executive committee and to compromise its investigation into the ERLC by obfuscating pertinent facts. So on or about, he says, May 29th of this year, this unidentified member of the ERLC Board of Trustees released the letter written by and at the direction of the defendant to the news media. The first letter is originally dated February 24th. It contained numerous false allegations against Mike Stone, who was then a prominent candidate for the presidency of the SBC. Upon information and belief, he writes, the first letter was leaked to the news media at the instructions of Russell Moore to defame Mike Stone and discredit his campaign for the presidency of the SBC. And then he references the second letter. It was written by Russell Moore and was strategically released to the media, either by him or pursuant to defendant's instructions. He says the second letter was dated May 31st of this year and written to J.D. Greer. He puts copies there and he says, upon information and belief, the defendant, Russell Moore, 
author the first letter and the second letter with the intention that both letters ultimately be disseminated to the public via leaks of the same to the news media. And then he talks about how it's affected his life, how he's had a lot of pushback and it's been horrible for him and how he's innocent of these charges that Russell Moore was throwing out against him and that basically it was all a political maneuvering on the part of Russell Moore. I I don't doubt that for a moment. I mean, it will have to be up to a court to decide. And in fact, they're requesting a jury trial for $750,000. Now, what I found really interesting is I was looking across social media at some of the prominent SBC accounts who follow these kinds of stories. All along, these people who are dyed-in-the-wool Russell Moore supporters couldn't care less that he was writing this stuff and talking about all the skullduggery that was allegedly going on behind the scenes and all the cover-up and the sexual abuse problem and blah, 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 blah. But he, he didn't dare to mention it. He didn't mention it at all when he actually wrote it. And then it was kind of, you know, thrown away as, well, you know, he was just in the heat of the moment. Okay, well, then why did he have a heat of the moment right about the time the annual meeting was about to take place? Of course, it was coordinated. And of course, they did it for political effect. Sounds like he was really mad and he wanted payback. Now, did he? Again, the jury is going to have to decide whether or not these claims hold water or if all of these allegations were true. But Mike Stone has consistently defended himself on the issue of we didn't conspire to try to protect people who were predators against sexual abuse victims. Mike Stone was a sexual abuse victim. It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't pass the straight face test. So you just can't take this for what it's worth. But I find it incredible that these more defenders just can't admit Anything about this guy was problematic, was wrong. He's never done anything wrong. And these are the same people who are defending Ed Litton to the hilt. The Southern Baptist Convention, folks, whether or not you're part of it, you need to know that this denomination is in terrible disarray. You've had all of these people quit the executive committee after they decided to waive attorney-client privilege, which has all kinds of problems assigned to it. But the messengers voted for it. So that's the direction they have to go. And now you have Mike Stone filing a lawsuit against Russell Moore. And you know what the Moore fanboys are saying? You're not supposed to sue. Scripture says you're not supposed to sue. And so people who are defending Mike Stone are saying, well, he's obviously looking at this as you know, evidence that Russell Moore is not a brother in Christ. You're not supposed to sue fellow Christians, but this is maybe Mike Stone's throwdown that I don't believe this guy's a Christian at all. And that's why I'm able to take him to court. Now, that's conjecture. We don't know if that's what he actually believes. But if you get hung up on the issue of why file a lawsuit, listen, if you believe that somebody is purely an operative, which a lot of people do in the Southern Baptist Convention, they do think that of Russell Moore. Uh, without knowing him personally as to assess his actual faith in Jesus Christ. But the guys acted like a political operative from the beginning and, you know, dropped his biggest bomb at the end. So I really hope and pray that the Southern Baptist Convention can get its act together. And, you know, I don't blame Mike Stone. I'm not trying to be unbiblical about it, but I don't blame him. He's talking. He, he's talked about how it's affected his income and it's affected his emotional state and, and all sorts of things. Imagine if you were lied about and smeared and, and you had those kinds of attacks launched against you and they were not true. I can understand exactly how he feels. Now, what the outcome of this will be remains to be seen. But it just goes back to what I said in 2014 about Russell Moore when I said this guy's not a good guy. 
Yeah, he's not a good guy. He's not a good guy. And I'll tell you, when I look across Southern Baptist life and I see all of the turmoil and all of the corruption that is present within the convention, it just makes me weep. It really does. And I love and support my Southern Baptist brothers and sisters in Christ. Pray for your convention. Pray for your leaders. Pray for Mike Stone and pray for Russell Moore. Thank you for being with us. You're listening to Janet Meffer today. We hope you'll join us next time. As always, it's a pleasure to be here with you. God bless. God bless.